my name is Todd. I'm the lead pastor here at Cornerstone, and uh, I always try to make it around to make sure I say hi to everybody. If I haven't had a chance to say hi to you yet, I just want to say hi, and I'd love to meet you as well. So welcome to Cornerstone. We've been in the middle of studying what's called the Great Commission. Uh, the Great Commission is found in, in Matthew 28. and starts in verse 16 and goes to verse 20. And uh, Christian started us off for the first couple weeks, and he launched off, kind of gave us an overview of the Great Commission, uh, and kind of from, a, from the start. And then last week, he really focused in on verse 18, this idea that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Now, I think what's so cool about this, and just to kind of put it in perspective, is, is that when you look at verse 16, and we're going to come back to this at the very end, the thing I always tell people is the beauty of verse 16 is Jesus told a group of people to be there, whether it was 11 or 500, and they showed up at that mountain. And I think, and I heard it one time, one guy said, the greatest ability is availability, and they were there. Now, little did they know what they were showing up for, did they? I mean, I think they're showing up, and they heard, some of them had maybe heard or seen Jesus had been raised from the dead, and they get there, and little did they know Jesus was going to have a worship service. Now, there's no music. I know we can't in the United States worship oftentimes without music, but they did just fine. It says in there they worshiped him. Some doubted. That's normal. All of us go through that process, and we're going to talk about that. But his climactic statement that he started with, finally the worship service is kind of at one point, and he comes up and he starts to preach, and that's his opening statement. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now today what I'm going to be talking about, in some ways it's not going to be practical like you're going to leave here and have five easy steps, you know, for being an incredible human being. This is not this point of this particular message. See, this message is, if you think about it, is the culmination. When you read the book of Matthew, everything is building along to the point where Jesus dies, he's buried, he's raised again, and these are the final words that Jesus is going to give the people following him. In other words, whatever comes out of this, it is extremely important. Right before my grandfather died a few years ago, I'll never forget this. He said to him, hey, I'd like you to make it back to Wyoming where I'm from. He goes, because I'd really like to talk to you. Well, my grandpa had followed Jesus his whole life. So even when I came into that room that day, I knew we were going to hear some pretty important things that he was going to tell me. And I just had my grandpa pouring out his heart before he went to be with Jesus, letting me know. And those words, I still, they're, they're private between he and I. But just how powerful it was, the last words that he gave me. Now, the reason this is so practical today is the words that Jesus are going to give us are not meant to be just nice suggestions or nice ideas that we should do. He gives us a command to make disciples of all nations, and that is our major task as the church and as people of God. Our job is not to have, you know, really wonderful worship services, because think about it. If Jesus was leaving us here to do nice worship services, why didn't he just call us home? He didn't leave us here to do, you know, cute little Bible studies between one another because if it was knowledge, he would have taken us home. He left us here because when he finished his ministry, there was still work to do. And he looks at all of those people that were there that day and he says, listen to them. I want you to go, therefore, 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to keep all that I have commanded you. And it says in your text, and behold, it should be an I, even I will be with you to the very end of the age. In other words, he's saying, this is your major task as the church and as people of God. So in other words, the reason this is so practical, because if you're a follower of Jesus, this is your major task too. This is the epitome of what we are supposed to be doing. Now, the problem comes in for us, and let's just kind of talk about that as we look at this particular text, is that we, we lose perspective in life. And let me, let me kind of share you with you a story to kind of get it going. When, uh, when I was pretty early on with one of my kids, um, you know, I, I did what any parent would do before I'm supposed to go somewhere. I looked at my kid and I said, hey, child, um, I need you to really have your, your bedroom cleaned and I need the back, the back uh, yard cleaned up before I come back. Well, you know by staying and saying that as a parent, you're just setting yourself up for miserable failure. So I exited, I came back in, and the room was not cleaned up, the yard was not cleaned up, and I went in and I was just like, you understood, right? Like what you were supposed to do. And I'll never forget this because this child looks back at me like they were like an adult, maybe five, six, seven years old, and this is, this is the words my child said to me. You know, Dad, it just wasn't my priority today. <laughs> to which I needed to give my child a new perspective on the idea of priority in father-child relationships. Now, in this particular text, this is actually what Jesus does. He's going to give a command to them, but first he's going to tell them who he is before he does it. That little word, therefore, right? We talk a lot about it. One of the greatest short shows of all time were created by Schoolhouse Rock. And so conjunction, junction, what's your function, right? Just for those of you that are younger, ask your parents about it. Look it up online. But this idea of a conjunction is very important because he's going to tell us, and this is what we're going to do the whole way through, is we're going to ask the question, Either why make disciples, or number two, how do we make disciples? And he's going to right off the very beginning tell us why we should make disciples, and that is because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. That's the correct perspective. Now, the problem with things like that when we talk about making disciples is, is that we, we, we need a perspective shift. I don't know. Has anybody ever heard of forced perspective before? Anybody ever seen that? I'll kind of give you a, a picture of it here. In, oh, gosh, dang it. There it is. Forced perspective. Now, in that forced perspective, the idea is, is it's, a, it's a, a way in which we trick the eye in, in looking at a picture where we think something that's either bigger or further away might be closer or smaller but here we have a picture of this little girl standing on the edge of the beach, and she's holding the sun. Now, let's be honest with each other. That little child could not hold the sun. But in a weird way, what forced perspective does is it convinces you in your mind that could happen. Now, we, the reason we know that can't happen is, is that the sun on the outside burns at 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, and at the inside, it burns at about 27 million degrees Fahrenheit, meaning that child would burn up. 
The second thing is, is that 1.3 million Earths fit inside the sun. But we look at it and we go, oh, wow, you know, she's got the whole world. No, she doesn't. Only Jesus has the whole world in his hands. Now, with this, though, this is what Satan does that's so crafty. Satan loves to come in and do forced perspective on us where we begin to see God smaller and smaller and smaller. And I would say this, the smaller God is within your perspective, the less likely you're going to obey what he tells you to do. Genesis 3, right, from the very outgo, here's Satan, he walks up to Eve, and, and, and Christian walked us through this a little bit, and one of the first questions he says to change their perspective, kind of this forced perspective, is did God really say that? And she's like, I don't know. And then he says this amazing statement to her, but here's why God doesn't want you to know it, because on the day that you eat of it, you will now be able to think and reason. You will be like God. And just like my child needed to have a perspective shift, this is exactly what Jesus is doing with this group of people, is he's walking in to make sure they understand who he is. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I would even say this, this is exactly what God does through the entire Old Testament. I'm just finishing up reading the Old Testament. And God has to constantly mess with our forced perspective. He's got to constantly come in front of the people and say, no, I'm the God that created everything. I'm the one that causes waves to happen. I'm the one that causes things to be born. I am huge. And so when I ask you to do something... I do it because I have all authority. Christian brought this up, is that God will never be afraid, and when we talk about this idea of patterns of power, to act in power and demonstrate his authority as a king. But let me, let me shift this a little bit, because Jesus has been actually, all throughout the book of Matthew, acting in power and demonstrating his authority as king throughout. Now, let me, let me give you some examples. One is that he was conceived by a virgin. By the way, never happened before. He was healing various illnesses and disabilities. He was controlling nature, speaking to the wind. He provided sustenance from just a few things. He defied the law of physics. I mean, have you ever thought about how crazy it would have been to see somebody walking on the water? Or can you imagine on April 15th, if somebody walked up to you with a fish and just inside of it was enough to pay your taxes like he did? That would be cool. He cast out demons. He restored life to the dead. He was resurrected. He, he didn't resurrect himself. He was resurrected by the Holy Spirit. In other words, there was this constant way in which he was fighting back against a forced perspective, a way in which we as humans tend to see God or Christ in this standpoint smaller and smaller and smaller. At the core of the Great Commission is always a big view of God, a right view of who he is. Now in this though, in that huge view, understand this, and this starts to move towards this idea of how we make disciples but while God is huge, and especially those of you that may not know Jesus that are here this morning, let me just speak to you. While he is the authority, the absolute monarch and ruler of all things, 
the Father gave Jesus this authority. And look at verse 28. Not so that we would stay away from him, but actually that we would come to him. He says, come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Don't stay away from me. Because I am the God over all things, come to me. And by the way, the reason that Jesus could do all those things that I listed above And the reason that I'm talking about all this, because each of those impacted people, they changed people's lives. They came to Jesus, and in coming to Jesus, their lives were transformed. But he did it through, the Bible talks about, the power of the Holy Spirit. That is so important. So keep that in the back of your head, because we're going to get to it in a little bit. But the big thing is, why? Because Jesus is just king. But the second part of that pattern of power that, that Christian laid out for us, pattern of power sounds like a superhero thing, doesn't it? I don't know why I just thought that, the pattern of power. You can do whatever you want with that. But Jesus calls humans to partner with him by using power, the power he gives to bring blessing to the world. In other words, he intends for us to join him. Now, how do we see this? Well, this is where the word and comes in in the middle of verse 20. That word and, again, is a conjunction that connects what I've been talking about to what I'm about ready to say. And in this, it says, behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. That's what he said. I'm going to always be with you. Now, what's so cool about this, and this is what's going to help us understand how we make disciples, is this should beckon us back to a time in history in which God told a person, I will be with you. And that person was Moses in Exodus 3. You can see this. It says, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Israel? Who am I is his question. And God's like, I don't kind of care who you are right now. You tell them, I will be with you. I'm there. It's not about you. I will be with you. Now, here's how we start to understand how we make disciples. We make disciples in God being with us. And it wasn't just anybody that was with him. We see this like in verse 14 when he talks about the fact that I am. In fact, when you look at Matthew 28 in verse 20, when he says in there, I am with you always, the actual construction of it is, is I with you, I am always. Meaning how we do this, we do this under the authority of the very God of the universe. I am with you. Now, the first time I ever kind of understood power, like in any type of magnitude, and this is going to sound strange, but when I was with my dad one time. My dad was an executive within the city. He had a badge, and he had all these different things that allowed him to go different places. So there's this thing called Cheyenne Frontier Days in Cheyenne, Wyoming. It's the largest outdoor rodeo in the world. And... um, So he's like, hey, you know, if you want to go to this, you need to come, you need to meet me and be there because if you don't meet me and come with me, you don't have authority to go anywhere within there. Nobody kind of cares about you is his gist. And so I show up and I, you know, I go to my dad's house and we drive in and as we're driving into this huge, gigantic kind of stadium and rodeo grounds, my dad drives in, he pops out his badge and we just went right in and I'm like, Dang, I want me one of them. 
We get there, and he goes, come on, we have a special entrance to go into. And I'm like, (laughs) you know, we walk into the special entrance. We get in there. We go anywhere that we want to go all throughout the park. And I'm thinking, dang, that is authority. And then as the night shows were starting, he takes me behind the stage, and I'm getting to meet Alan Jackson and Garth Brooks. You don't know who they are. Look them up online, but they're the big deal within the country music world. And there I am hanging out with these guys, shaking their hands. But listen to me, it had nothing to do with me. My dad was the authority. And so therefore, how we do this, we can never forget, I'm not the authority, Jesus is the authority. And when you're with Jesus, you're with the one who has authority over all heaven and earth. And by the way, you can get into better than just Garth Brooks and and, and Alan Jackson. So that's just a side statement. But that's the thing. So two things off that. Why? Why do we make disciples? Because Jesus is king. He has the right perspective on the world. He knows how the world fits together. How do we do it? We do it with him and we do it in his power. But there's another question though. How do we do it in his power? Now Christian kind of brought this out yet last week when he was talking about this idea of the Holy Spirit. In, in, in Acts 1, there's this, this statement where he's kind of finishing up and he says, but I, you will receive, and here's the word power. You're going to receive this from me. Well, How? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the world. In other words, you won't just have Aaron going with you, right? That's how Moses had it. Moses said to God, I I need a a compadre to go with me to do this. And so God sends Aaron. For all of us in this room that know King Jesus, when we enter into things, we don't just have anybody with us. We have the very Holy Spirit of God inside of us. That's the kind of power that we have. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead and hovered over the waters at creation. We aren't just anybody. We are powerful because of who we are with. We are with King Jesus. So is everybody with me? Okay, two things. Why? He's king. Two, because, or how? We can do it because we are with him. That's the first one. Let's ask this question again. So on one end, then, we understand it from that perspective, but let me give you a different angle and ask the new questions of why and how. Well, the why and how is kind of loaded into the history of this word disciple. So you're going to have to go with me. I'm going to geek out here just for a little bit, okay, to kind of help you understand it. And we're going to even talk about Plato and Aristotle. You ready? Okay. Everybody know who Plato and Aristotle are? Old dead dudes that were really smart. That's who they are. Now, this word disciple in a lot of ways came from this particular time period, Plato, as all of us know, is considered one of the probably greatest philosophers of all time, how he thought through the world. He was a a guy that, that when he would write things down and teach things, people were wanting to follow him. And the people that were following him, they would call disciples. Now, a guy that began to follow him was this guy named Aristotle. And what Aristotle did at the very end of it, he realized that what Plato was teaching was some crazy junk. And so he began to form these schools and these methods of teaching because he wanted all kinds of people all around the world to hear this stuff that Plato was saying. 
So what he did was, is they would raise up people and people would learn and then they would leave and start these schools of thought and these ways in which we're thinking, these methods, and they would keep going from town to town to town. And what was going on was, is that Aristotle saw what Plato was teaching was a big thing. Now here's why we make disciples and I'm gonna connect this dot. We make disciples because God is doing a big thing. In the particular case we're talking about with, with Aristotle and Plato, most people don't realize this, but we think in the back of our minds that the great empire of the time was Rome. In fact, when Rome finally defeated Greece, they thought, finally, we've arrived. And little did they know, actually, Greece beat them because the world began to be what was called Hellenized. In other words, Greek thought went all over the world. In fact, you all are sitting here today inside of the culture that we are because of what Plato taught and Aristotle put together. We are a culture that has been Hellenized in some ways. We are under the same type of thought. The Romans didn't win. The Roman, the Roman monarchy has fallen. You know who won? The Greeks. They won because the way the world thinks is still there. And by the way, this is exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about disciples. Jesus, when he loads up this term, means that I am doing something big. And this big thing, when you look down in verse, eight, verse 19, is, is I want this thing to go to the nations. I want you to organize yourselves and put yourselves together in such a way that you get out there and the way that Jesus thought, people go out and begin to teach who Jesus is. You begin to let people know the greatness of Jesus Christ. In fact, this very room we're into today is an example of the schools that came when Jesus said, go make disciples. I mean, you gotta think about this for a second. Jesus was not trying to take over governments. He was not trying to take over the Roman government. He was not trying to take over the European governments. He was not trying to take even over the, the United States government. Christians have got to understand our quest is not to get power to try to tell people what to do. Our quest is to be like Plato and Aristotle and present to people the greatness and the goodness of Jesus so that they might follow that king even though he has no political power in this world. He has authority over all things. That's who we want people to know. Okay, so if that's it, he's doing the big thing, well then how? Well, built into this, this word again is kind of a Jewish rabbinic thought. And in Jewish rabbinic thought, it wasn't just you create schools, it's that you are with people. Rabbis would have people come follow them. They would eat together and they would, they would take people out and they would show them how to live life and how to do things together. In other words, we're not just trying to do this massive thing that kind of gets out there with a political thought. We are doing it how? Through relationships. People matter. The idea of the Jewish concept was is to teach you in all of life. To walk you through how it is that, 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 that how I handle my money and how I parent and how I do all these various diverse things with my life, they matter. So it isn't just a conceptual methodological reality. The way that Jesus now is talking about it is he's saying to these guys, remember how I did it with you? Remember I said to a group of you, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men? 
Remember how we hung out together and ate together? Remember how we, we probably even around the fire, we talked all kinds of life. We, we probably laughed together. I know it's weird to think that Jesus laughed, but he was fully human. So I can imagine Peter and James and John at some point, you know, laughing over something, but they just did life together. It's not a system or a methodology. It's a way of life. This thing that Jesus is throwing out there as king who's called us to, that he will be with as he does it, this thing that is supposed to be this big thing is intended to go from very small, but listen to me, this very small thing, this is how brilliant Jesus is and was, this small thing was how he was gonna create the big thing. In fact, he told him a parable at one point in Matthew 13 where he talks about this idea of a mustard seed. Remember that? He talks about this mustard seed. He says, I know it looks so small, but when you put it in the ground, it gets huge. Jesus Christ is laying out for us, why do we make disciples? Because he's doing a big thing. But how do we do it? We do it very much on a personal level, person to person out of relationship. Now built into that, is this idea then of what it means to then, he talks about this idea of take my yoke upon you. Christian talks about this last week, he talked about this, the idea of being rest, but this idea of taking my yoke upon you explains though how we do actually this disciple making thing. Now that same rodeo I was telling you about, my dad always used to take me to this parade. And again, parades in, in Wyoming, they're like, they're not cars and floats a lot of times. They're like animals, right? So you got buggies and you got horses and you got all kinds of different cattle that are going through there. But I'll never forget once as a little kid, there was this huge oxen and this little tiny oxen and they were pulling this tiny little cart behind them. And as a kid, I'm just looking at it because the one oxen was just massive. And I leaned over to my dad and I said, Dad, why is it that one oxen is so big and the other oxen that's attached to him in the yoke is so small? He goes, well, Todd, it's because they're trying to break the little one to the yoke. The little one's not pulling anything, even though he thinks he is. The one pulling the weight is the big one. See, this big thing that we're learning to do is to understand you cannot pull the weight. That's why Jesus says, take my load upon you because it's easy and light. It is, not, it, is not, it is a heavy load, but it is light, not because I can pull it, but because he's pulling it. I'm just learning how to be broken to the yoke is all that I am doing. So when we say how, it's not by our power. Jesus says in, in, 1 John, or in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's in his power. So let's go to this next one. Let me show you what I'm talking about before we go on. Now the final two kind of have to do with this and in, in, in how we align our lives to make disciples. So the, the first why that we're gonna ask is based around three participles. Everybody know what participles are? Ing words, running, throwing, things like that. Well, the three words that we have up there, I've got them highlighted, are go, baptize, and teach. Now, those three words now are going to describe how this disciple-making process happens. And I'm going to use the word go at the very end because I'm going to try to set a bridge for Christian for next week when he gets up and teaches. 
But these, these participles are helping us understand why we do discipleship and how we do discipleship in a unique way. The first one that's there is this idea of baptize. Now, a lot of people know baptism because we do it up over here, but let me, let me see if I can take you back into their world at the time. To get baptized wasn't just something we do on a Sunday and we kind of stand in front of everybody and say, hey, I want to follow Jesus. It was something that spoke to people about who it is that I am now. In fact, we probably should change the wording up in Matthew 28 of disciple. It should actually be this word, disciplize. It shouldn't be make disciples. It should be disciplize. Now, let me explain to you. When we sterilize instruments inside of an operating room, they're still those instruments, but now they're not dirty. They're what? Clean. I hate onions. But when you caramelize an onion... It's still an onion, but now because the sugars come out of it and get browned, you can actually now taste and actually be able to maybe put one of those nasty things down your throat because they're so nasty. The onion is still the onion, but it's been changed. See, all throughout at the very beginning in Matthew 3, when Jesus and John the Baptist broke onto the scene, they called people to repent. They said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the whole reason of why we need to get baptized, if you're taking notes, here it is. We need to be discipled because we need to change. We need to be discipleized. Now, this idea of baptism, again, proclaims that reality. To baptize something, it's this Greek word, baptizo. And when you would take like a a piece of thread or you would take some fabric and you'd put it down in the water, it used to be white, you'd put it in, in pink kind of coloring, it would come out and it would be pink. It was still the fabric, but it had been changed. Here's the thing. When you go down in that water as a representation of what God has done in our lives, are by faith coming to him and saying, please God, we know that we need to change. We want to repent and no longer go this way but that way. This water represents me going down. And let me tell you something. Every single one of you that comes out of that water may have gone in whatever color you were, but all of us come out red. Red under the blood of Jesus. See, Jesus is wanting us to know it's not just that Jesus has great authority. It's not just that in this how that he's wanting to now help us to understand his power and the Holy Spirit within our lives. It isn't just this idea of these schools of thought. He wants them to know that the gospel is practical. It will transform you into the person that God intends you to be. I think that's why he's saying, come to me. I know what you're supposed to be. Quit fighting it. Quit trying to pull it. Yoke yourself to me. Come to me and I will change you and make you different. But how does he then do that? Well, on one side, we know why it needs to happen. We need to change. But that's is where this, this next part of participle comes in. Teaching them to now keep all that I've commanded you. Baptism is a commitment to say, Jesus, I'm not coming to you perfect. I'm coming to you as a completely imperfect person. But because of the work of Jesus, I'm now coming to you, but I'm making a commitment. Would you change me and transform me into the man or the woman that you've called me to be? Baptism is not for perfect people. It's for people that acknowledge we are not perfect. 
And out of that, though, then God begins to do his perfecting work in us through teaching us to keep all the things he's commanded us. In other words, as he teaches us Matthew 5 and Matthew 6 and Matthew 7, the, the, great, the, um, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, come to me and I will teach you. I'll show you. See, this is the beauty of what Jesus is doing at this particular moment when he's announcing this out of teaching is that he's not asking us just to do something. He's, ask, he's calling us to do something and saying, and then I will do it within you. Let's do this. So why? Because we need to change. How? Well, we need to be taught how to live inside of Jesus' amazing kingdom with him as king. Now, here's the very last thing. The last word on there is go. Now, anytime you see a participle like go, you have to ask the question, well, where? Right? If, if I walked home today, you know, and my wife says to me, go. Well, first of all, I'd think she was mad. But second of all, I'd be like, where am I supposed to go? This is so important to this question we're asking now of why? And it kind of comes back to Jesus doing the big thing. Why is Jesus making disciples? Because he is after the nations. He's not after just a bunch of, you know, white or brown or black middle class people from, from Simi Valley, California. Jesus is after all kinds of different people. When you look at like Genesis 17, when God told Abraham, look, I'm gonna do a work in you and your family is gonna bless not just a couple people, your family is gonna bless the nations. In Daniel last week uh, that Christian brought up about the kingship of Jesus, he says the reason my kingship is happening is so that people from all kinds of countries, all kinds of language groups, all kinds of peoples will come and know me. Revelation 5.9, Revelation 7.9, it's every tribe, it's every tongue, it's every nation. See, this idea of the nations, when we say Jesus in this idea is going after the big thing, he's going after the world. Now, the question then is, is how? Okay, so we know why he's doing it. He's going after the world, but how? Go. Go. Well, where? Go next door. Go across the street. But let me tell you something. If a church does not take seriously the nations, we must go to the nations. We are being just as disobedient as my child was when my child said, you know, it just wasn't a priority. The reason we have global ministry is because we believe this. We believe the gospel should go next door, but we also believe the gospel goes to every tribe and tongue and nation. And it's not, by the way, just to save people. See, this is the thing people don't realize, is that Jesus Christ is redeeming not just people, but he's redeeming whole cultures. See, by the time we get to heaven one day, you see this like in Isaiah and Ezekiel, is that there's going to be kings bringing from their lands all the good stuff from their lands and presenting it to King Jesus as a way of showing how we took what he gave us and we made it very good. Remember, Christian talked about that last week. 
And so I am so glad, even though I enjoy classic rock music, man, it is on the edge of divine. (laughs) It's not the only music that's to be redeemed. Music from Latin America, music from Africa and Asia, Music from all over the world will be brought to the king one day and now not used in any kind of a way to make much of ourselves or in any way to serve Satan. It's going to be music now that's going to be exalted in such a way that it praises the king. There's going to be all kinds of food. Aren't you glad? Oh my goodness. Like I remember one time thinking, okay, there's going to be food, but is it going to be like, I don't know, ham and cheese sandwiches? No. See, it's bigger than that. It's going to be redeemed in such a way that we take that was good that God gave us, but we're going to make it very good. And let me just tell you something. The one food that I'm really thankful that's going to be there, and I'll tell you what, this is one of the good reasons I moved to California, is I love Mexican food. Yes. And not the Americanized stuff. I'm talking that stuff that makes you go, oh. That stuff. Now, I bring all of that up because what we're doing here ties back to the very beginning. Jesus is king, and he's doing a big thing. And all of us have been invited to join him. But here's what I want to throw at you. I think the greatest obstacle that most of you are gonna throw up to joining God and the big thing, well, there's two things. One, you're gonna buy into our God being small. We have to fight against that. The second thing is this concept of but first. But first, let me do this. But first, let me do that. We need to, as a church, to help one another to get rid of the but first. And to make our lives about joining Jesus in this great thing. It doesn't get any bigger than this. And if you're somebody here that doesn't know Jesus, I'm inviting you today to come and know the king. The king who could have stayed in heaven, but instead he enveloped himself in humanity to come save humans from their sin and rebellion against God. He took sin upon him and shame upon him. And the amazing reality is, is instead out of grace, he now gives us his goodness. And for those that bend their knee before that great king, you aren't just anybody. You're in a long line of people like Moses and Abraham and David, like all the apostles before you and all those that have ever bent their knee to Jesus. You are a part of that. And you aren't just anybody You're a child of the king. See, we're doing this not just as this giant endeavor. It's because it changes people's lives. And when it changes people's lives, it changes everything. And so if you're here today and you don't know King Jesus, we would love to make sure that you understand what it means to follow him. If you're somebody here that's never been baptized before, can I just say this? I don't know how else to say this. If you've never been baptized before, whatever the reason, you're in disobedience. Like, I I just don't even know how else to say that, so I'll just say it that way. But for us as a church, let's not settle. 
Let's go after the big thing. Let's go after it and not just this, this big concept, but what Jesus is talking about in the little things in our families, with our kiddos, with our friends next door, in our relationships. Let's believe that if we go after those things, God can take and expand that like a mustard seed and change the world. There is enough power in this room. Think about it. There's enough power in this room to transform the world because there's over 500 people in here and that was about what was there from the very beginning. We're a part of the greatest thing ever. And all God's people said...